Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, as we continue with part 2 of Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Put Your Sin to Death. week together we will celebrate the Lord's Supper as part of our worship so we encourage meditation self-reflection confession of sin and repentance throughout the week um, and then afterwards today uh, after we're done with worship we want to fully focus on worship here uh, if you stick around just a, I'll give just a couple brief announcements at the end of that so Romans chapter 8 uh, what we are seeing is God tell us uh, that for those who come to Christ, those who are justified, that's the word, to be made right with God, one of the many gifts that we receive is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we have been learning works that he is doing in the believer. We're going to read verses 12 and 13 here, so we're not getting like the full context, but we're focusing in on this one specific work that the Holy Spirit is doing in all justified Christians. He is leading us to put our sin to death. So that's specifically what we're meditating on today. So Romans 8, begin in verse 12. We'll read and then ask for God's help. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, eternal, unchanging, glorious God, you rule all of the cosmos. It all exists for your glory. It was all made by you, ordered by you, designed by you, is sustained through you. And everything in one way or another is giving you glory and is going is going to display your glory in great and majestic ways. Father, we are thankful that you've given us this invaluable privilege that we get to give you glory as worshipers, as people who have been given your grace, eyes opened out of the darkness that we were in, rescued out of our own ignorance, rebellion, stupidity, and insanity that we lived in and brought to come to know you and God that we get to take part with those who are glorifying you by worship father that's what we long to do so father we want to continue our time of worship we have been worshiping through fellowship and singing and praying and reading of your word father we want to continue worship now lord we're, we want to lay ourselves before you in in the posture of sub, sub, submitting to you, O oh God, bowing ourselves before you and saying, we are yours, take us and use us, show us more, O oh God. So Father, we, we draw near. God, we want to claim this promise that you give us that when we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. So Father, we come only because you've given us access through the blood of your Son and by the help of your Holy Spirit, we come and we draw near and we pray, O oh God, come draw near to us, O oh Lord. We worship, Father, first and foremost, because you are our great treasure and inheritance. You are the one that we want. Father, please show us more of yourself. Show us your glory. This is what we pray. Father, we know also that as we worship, you're doing a hundred other miracles as well. You're transforming and sanctifying us and we want that too. But first and primarily, oh God, we want more of you. So please, God, give it. I ask for the grace to worship in preaching and I pray, Lord, that all of us will worship as we receive your word, oh God. So please come now, give us the grace of your spirit, things we cannot do in our flesh. Give us the gift of your spirit, O oh God, we pray. Shine light on your word, open eyes, 
Sanctify your people, draw us near. And Father, we also pray that any who are not yet born again, that have not yet come to Christ to be saved, that Lord, this would be the day that it happens. So Father, accomplish your purposes, we pray. We ask it all through Christ. Amen. <laughs> Moses being raised in Pharaoh's household had the opportunity to live a very plush life. He grew up in the house of royalty. Moses never had to worry about bread on the table. You know, it, it, it's one of those things in our modern times we have trouble realizing just how insanely rich we really are. Um, before the year 1500 AD, um, human mortality rates were such that one out of every four babies died in infancy. Of those babies who lived, one out of every four of the living children died before, before reaching puberty, puberty or, or passing through puberty. Moses lived in a situation that there was food on his table every single day, not only food, provision. Moses, living in a house of royalty, ate the delicacies of the wealthy. Moses had a life of ease at his fingertips. Mo Moses had access to, if you, if you kind of get my drift here, pleasures of the flesh, which would have been readily available to him as royalty living in a pagan land. Moses had a life that many dream of at his fingertips. And yet, Moses left all of that. Moses turned his back on a life of ease in order to go and join with the people of God who were slaves. And Hebrews 11 takes that example and it applies it, applies it to us, applies it to the matter of faith. Every Christian is faced with a, a Moses-like decision. There are Moses-like moments, and I, I, I want to show you two ways that this is applied. But, but first, let me just read to you Hebrews 11, 24 to 26, if you want to jot it down. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So, so let me mention two ways that we got to have a Moses-like moment. The first is that first way that we come to God, the call of Christ to come and be saved, the call of Christ to come to him in faith is a call to turn like Moses turned. Now, I, I want you to hear the gospel according to the Bible versus the gospel that has been misconstrued in a massive way in our land. I want you to hear a distinction in the way that the gospel is very often kind of explained in our land. First of all, let me say, if you're new to studying the Bible, you've never uh, heard this kind of message before. You need to know that the most important message of scripture that you need to hear is that you are not okay right now. You are not all right on your own. You have sinned against the living God. You have broken his law. And that means you are not okay with him. No matter how many country songs tell you that you are fine. You are not okay with the living God. You need to be forgiven of your sins and made right with him. There is a union. There is a joining with God that you need. And what scripture says is you will not have eternal life until you are made right with God. And so if you are then saying, how do I have this? The Bible again and again and again and again calls out to you. And God says, come to me and I will give it to you. But how do we come? This is what Jesus constantly so when I say the gospel, this is what I mean. The need to be right with God, how God has made a way for you to be right with him through the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection to pay the justice for sins and to receive that, what Jesus says is come in faith. Come to Christ 
in faith. But here's, here's where I'm making a distinction that is important for us. When Jesus invited people to come and be saved, what a lot of times gets told is, is here's all you need to do. Pray this little prayer that I tell you to pray or raise your hand in a service or sign your name to this card or go be baptized and then you're, you're automatically saved or you know at VBS at eight years old, just pray this little prayer. It doesn't matter what happens after that. Know that you're saved, everything's fine. You can live however you want and just know you're okay. Not one time in the scripture is that explained. Instead, what we are told is what it means to come trust in Christ is to turn to him in a Moses-like moment, to turn from the pleasures of sin, to turn from a way of life where I'm doing what I want, ignoring God or trusting myself and to come trust in Christ, who is Lord, Savior, King, Messiah. Jesus said, come to me, deny yourself, take up your cross, which is a poetic way of describing come die, come be willing to die, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, he said, and come follow me. So, if you have never turned to Christ, you do need to understand that that can happen even right where you sit right now. That can happen within the next 30 seconds for your heart to turn. So this is not a call to go be good, do good works, and then your good works will equal heaven. That is false gospel. Scripture says you can be made right with God right now, but we must turn in the right kind of way. And by the way, everything that I just explained to you, this kind of Moses-like turning from pleasures of sin to Christ, this is what the Bible means when it says the word repent. The word repent does not merely mean to feel sorry. Judas felt bad about his sin. Judas is in hell. Judas did not repent. Repentance is not merely to feel bad. Repentance is to then turn to come to Christ. And Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Come trust in Christ. So that's the first way Hebrews 11 would apply Moses's example to us, come to Christ. But now for us who are following Christ, for, for you who have come to him, we're walking with him, Christian, this Moses moment is to be repeated again and again and again, thousands of times in the life of following Christ. Choosing to leave the life of the pleasures of sin in order to come obey Christ, this is the way of life of the Christian. This is what a life of repentance is. Okay, so there is a moment of repentance there is a moment of surrendering to Christ and then there is a life of repentance. And a life of repentance means that our heart adopts the attitude of submission to him and, and every day there are these moments that we are leaving the pleasures of sin and turning to follow Christ. And that is what we are being called to in this passage in Romans 8. We're being called in this passage, we're being told that the justified Christian, those who have truly joined with Christ, we have the Holy Spirit in us, and here is one of the things that he is doing. It is a big thing that he is doing, but here is one of those things that he is doing. He is leading the people of God to put to death their sin. We even saw last week, if you remember, it's an indicator. Those who are not putting their sins to death, it's not that the, they need the good works to earn heaven, it's that this is indicative of the one who does not have the Holy Spirit. And the one who does not have the Holy Spirit is not in Christ. Those who are putting sin to death have the Spirit and are in Christ. So we began last Sunday to study this subject. And this morning we're going to continue. And I, and I want to tell you, I want to answer a question that you might not even be asking, but I'm going to answer it anyway, because that's what we do. 
A question you might not even be asking is this. Why are we slowing down to talk about just one phrase for a couple or several weeks? Like if we've been making our way along, why, why stop for a period of time on just one phrase with one truth? Let me, let me give you two reasons why. The first is because this truth is not just another truth. This is one of those central truths that, that connects to many passages of the New Testament. And in fact, many of the passages which explain um, the very call of the gospel itself, kind of like we already talked about, Jesus giving the call of the gospel, come die, come deny yourself. How do I turn? Turn in your heart like this. The New Testament is constantly connecting this truth with the basic call of the gospel. Okay. Jesus says, come follow me. What does that look like? Well, here's a big one. Die to our flesh and live a life of dying to the flesh. It's what we're signing up for to turn to Christ. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and come follow me. If we were to ask Jesus, what did you mean by the word daily? When you said, take up the cross daily, this would be a major part of what is meant. It's not the only thing, but this would be a major part. Die to the sinful deeds and lust. So I'm hoping to show that this is not just another instruction amongst the thousands of instructions that we have in scripture, but this one is kind of an umbrella that incorporates a lot of other instructions beneath it. And this is tied to the very meaning of what it means to be a Christian. You say you're a Christian. It is, it is a question to ask, what do you mean by that? A Christian is a follower of Christ. This is a massive part of it. But then here's the second reason why. This truth in particular has been largely lost in our culture. So not worldwide, but in our culture, this truth has largely been lost and misconstrued. The full gospel is not often what is preached and perhaps the weightiest part of the gospel and what it means to be a Christian that is left out is what it means to repent and what it means to live a life of repentance. And so let me give you an example here. One time I was having a conversation with another pastor and we pastors and we get together, we talk, one of the things we talk about, what you preaching on these days. This pastor asked me what you preaching this Sunday. And that particular Sunday, I was preaching on this. And so I said, the mortification of sin, put your sins to death. And he looked at me kind of puzzled. He's like, really? Really? And I said, you don't approve? He's like, oh, no, no, that's fine if the people are ready for that kind of thing. Now, I, I just want, this text says, if we are not putting to death the deeds of the body, we are heading to the grave. Guys, it is a major, major issue to think that the call of Jesus is something other than to come and die. This text says, how, what is the way of life? It is the way of putting sins to death, not because they're good deeds that earn eternal life, but what does it mean to have Christ? To have Christ is to have the spirit within you. And if the spirit is within you, you will be putting these sins to death. This is explained. Guys, this should be Christianity 101. Like this should, this should be like you, re, you come to an unreached people group and you're sharing the gospel with them. On day one, we're explaining what it means to follow Christ. And here we are living in a land where it's kind of like, yeah, obedience, that's not really expected. All Jesus wants is you know, whatever their version is, if this is not understood, we have lost a missing block of the foundation of Christianity 101. When Jesus preached the gospel, he explained this. Guys, this matters. And that's 
another reason why we believe it is important. We need to slow down on this phrase to make sure we, we show how it connects the dots with other parts and to see the imperative on us. So we're going to continue teaching through this doctrine. Essentially what I'm doing this morning is just taking this one truth and expounding upon it. So sometimes we study a bigger section and we'll study numerous truths. There's a time to take just one truth and say, I want to think very deeply on one truth. That's what I'm hoping to do this morning. So I'm going to divide our time into three parts, three parts. I'll tell them to you as we go. Here's number one, choosing to put your sin to death is choosing to oppose the very way of life of the world and choosing to live a way of life that often feels unnatural. So let me tell you what I mean. James 4, 4, you can flip there if you like or jot it down, but I'm just going to read it to you. James 4, 4, you adulteresses, James doesn't pull any punches there. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The very way of life in this world is built on the principle of serving self and indulging the flesh. It defines this world. If you are of the opinion that mankind is mostly good and this world is mostly a pretty peachy place, you are going to be very confused when you begin to read the Bible because the Bible gives this, paints this picture of God looking down from heaven and what he sees with his perfect evaluation. This world is in rebellion to God. Mankind stands opposed to God and has turned their backs on God. In fact, that word world in the New Testament is very often used. Like if you see, when first John says the world, the way that it is used is to speak of mankind in rebellion to God. The man of the world though looks at himself and evaluates himself and says, but I'm righteous. I'm good. You get into gospel conversations. Listen, this is where we were too one day, uh, one time in the past. But you get into a gospel conversation, a man of the world says, I will be in heaven because I'm a good person. If you want to dismantle his worldview, you can do it with one question. You're righteous and you're good. Here's the question. By whose standard? By whose Standard, because what you will then see, it is by the standard that he himself has invented. By the standard of God, we fall short. And scripture shows that we are enslaved to pride and lust. Pride and lust. In fact, 1 John, when it's explaining the world, he says all that is in the world. So he's explaining the way of life, the pattern of the world. It is enslaved to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Mankind is enslaved to pride and lust. Thomas Watson, one of the great Puritans said, pride kicks against heaven and lust binds us to the earth. There's a lot of truth in that. Pride kicks against heaven. I do not want him to be my Lord. I am Lord. And lust binds us to the earth. Lust is, I love what is here and I want more, more, more. Like Proverbs speaks of the leech who's always crying more, more, give me more. Mankind is enslaved to pride and lust and yet mankind is always taking things that God calls sin, taking rebellious parts of our hearts and yet putting a new, a new spin on it, new words, new fresh repackaging of it to call something that God calls sin and to call it something that sounds even righteous. Love is love, man. It's not pride, it's, it's self-esteem. It's not raising my fist to the God of heaven, it's I believe in myself. This kind of thing defines the world. And listen, Christian, the Christian opposes all of this. The Christian opposes pride and lust the very way of the world. 
The Christian believes and submits to the law of heaven. Now listen, we're not as, as successful in obeying it as we want to be. We keep falling ourselves to pride and lust, but it is a big deal that we submit ourselves to the rule of heaven. It is a big deal that we see the law of heaven and we bow to it. And what that means though is we are opposing pride and lust and the way of the world. We are opposing the way of life we once lived. So we need to be careful. We're not being judgy and condemning. I was once there myself. I'm still fighting all this stuff that I can't stand within me, but we oppose the way of life. And so here's the point that I'm getting to. Christian, by following Christ, if we actually do this, if we pick up our crosses and follow Christ, you are choosing a way of life that is going to be counted as crazy by the world. You are going to be odd. You are going to be strange. Strange should be a good thing when you're in a madhouse. We are living in a real life scenario where the madmen of the asylum have taken over the joint. God, the one who made all things and gave it all its order, I think he knows what he's doing. He gave it all its order is the only sane one. This is an asylum. The madmen have taken over. The madmen declare themselves to be the sane ones and look at anyone who opposed them and call them crazy. Christian, you're not crazy. And it's helpful every once in a while for us to come together and remind ourselves of that. Because you live in this world and you hear voice after voice after voice after voice. And, and every once in a while, it can kind of be like, am I? You're not crazy. You're submitting to the rule of heaven, the only sane one. But the point is, Christian, you are going to have to come to peace with being at odds with the world. At 200 different places, you are going to disagree with the very foundations of the world. At 200 different places, you are going to disagree with the way the world does things. And if we have a fear of man in our hearts, then we will compromise. If we have a lust for the praise of men in our hearts and we can't handle being viewed as strange then we will compromise. That pride in our hearts can create this longing where I want the approval of those around me. This is one of the things that churches are really struggling with right now. You see it. The church in our culture for a long time has had at least some degree of respectability in the culture. Now, I submit to you, the true message of the gospel has never been popular. But the church has enjoyed some level of respectability. A lot of that is changing right now. And a lot of Christians and churches don't know what to do about it. We're no longer getting the nod of approval from the culture around us. So I guess I'm going to raise my fist when they shout that I should. That we have to come to peace with being at odds with the world. You are going to be gossiped about. You are going to be counted as crazy and strange. Care more for the opinion of your God than the opinion of the masses. But let me also say this. This way of life, putting the deeds of the flesh to death, is also contrary to the way of life that most often feels natural to us. So hang with me here, please. This is where true Christians often get themselves in trouble. I found myself in trouble in this. You probably have as well. This is, this is where we can get into trouble. The Bible will declare something to be sin, but it's something that the world doesn't regard as evil. There's a lot of that. And it might be something that even feels very natural to myself. It can feel very natural to me. And so when I encounter it in the word of God, first of all, there's the difficulty that sometimes we read the word and we encounter a sin, but I don't see it in myself. It's there. Maybe everybody else does, but I struggle to see it myself for a time. But there's also those times where we will read in the law of God about some sin and we look at it and we think, well, that certainly, surely that can't be what the text really means. It's time for a Greek word study. 
It's time for me to find that one variant use that sometimes like one out of a hundred, it means this. And if I push it into the text and, you know, kind of grind it in there, then it'll say what I want. And then it matches what I want it to say. But the reason that we can do that is because, for Christian, there are sins that can feel very natural. There are sins that by my philosophy's evaluation shouldn't be counted as evil. You know, I might even say, well, this is just so obvious. This isn't evil or this is the way that it should be. Let me give one of the more obvious examples, one that we do discuss. God has declared certain various sexual acts and lusts to be evil. But someone will come along and say, but you don't understand. I was born this way. You don't understand, I am attracted to this and not this. You don't understand, this is who I am. This is down to the very fabric. Now, now listen, there was a time when the way that culture and cultural Christianity argued with that kind of thing is they said, no, 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 there's no way you're born with that. And the student of the Bible takes a step back and says, doesn't Romans 5 tell us that we are born in Adam? Like, aren't we jacked up from the womb? Don't we see that in Adam, we have inherited a whole host of temptations and lust and anger and all kinds of things mixed together. Why would we think that that would not apply to sexual temptations? Listen, listen, Christian, who we are in Adam, there is a way of life that feels natural. When Jesus calls us to come and die, there are a lot of times that what we're called to do is not going to feel natural. There's a reason why he called it death. Jesus did not say, come follow me and let's tweak some things. He said, let's come and die. Come and die. Why would we expect death to feel natural? Like, why would we expect it to, to feel okay? But here's the reality, Christian. We are going to have places where what we are called to feels wrong, but we submit ourselves to the word of God. I'm also going to tell you, we cannot determine the law of God based on what we feel. We cannot determine the law of God based on what my logic from my philosophy says that it should be. There are going to be a number of places in the word of God when you read and God will lay out here is righteousness and a part of us is going to go, boy, that's not how I think it ought to be. But that's the whole point. You are not God. He is. We submit ourselves to the perfect law of God. Jesus calls us to come and die. To die again and again and again. Monday morning, die. Monday afternoon, die. Five minutes later when the next temptation comes, die. To die again and again and again because every sin has something enticing about it. It might just be that it's a, it's a, itch that I just want to scratch. There's something impulsive. It might be that there is a pleasure of sin. Many, many sins have a pleasure to it. Sometimes our sins make us miserable, but for an unexplainable reason, I want to do it. What is that? That's Adam. That's the flesh. But we die. We die. We die. Christ calls us to come and die. And even though I used like a more obvious example with the sexual sin. We got to understand that amongst the Christian community within the local church, there can be some sins that not everybody regards as sin or the kind of thing that I can give like a, a different name to it. And it doesn't sound as bad or one of the lines that sometimes gets used. This is just who I am. This is how God made me that line, that line has been used to excuse many, many sins. Come and die. Deny yourself. This is what it means to live repentance and put the deeds of the body to death. All right, here's number two. The call to put sin to death is a call to total transformation inside and out. Here's what I mean. In verse 13, I, you know, I keep using a lot of language of put your sin to death, put your flesh to death, that kind of thing. It's because we know there's other passages that say this, but if you look at the exact language, it speaks of putting to death the deeds 
or the practices would be another translation of that word, the deeds of the body. So let's ask a question, again, that you may not even be asking, but we're trying to understand the text. This is how you study. You ask questions of the text. If we're told to put to death the deeds of the body, does that mean that that's all I should be worrying about? The actions, the practices, the works, the externals. Does that mean that I don't need to worry about my thoughts, my attitudes, my character, the condition of my heart, all of the internal things? Well, you're already answering this. You know, of course, God wants us to address the internal as well as the external. But if that's the case, then why is it worded like this? I believe that Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says it in the way that he does because numerous times scripture teaches that our deeds, that's the last installment of a process. In other words, that there's a progression that comes before an action. So why do you do what you do? Good or bad? Good or bad? Why do you do what you do? The Bible tells us. The Bible tells us there are motives thoughts, desires. There is a progression. If you flip over to uh, James chapter one for a moment, James one, starting in verse 13, and I am going to go fairly quickly here. So I'm just going to go ahead and read it. James one, 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So so what do we see? The point there is made when we are being tempted, we cannot blame God and say it's his fault. No, no, no. What are we told there? When something is in front of us and evil desires are being stirred, not caused, stirred, what's the problem? The problem is my own lust. The problem is with my own heart. That's why I'm being tempted. I'm being drawn to this thing. And then he, used, then he says, and when lust has conceived, there's, there's a pregnancy illustration that's used there. What happens, okay? Lust is in the womb. Then there's a growing process. It is receiving nutrients. There is a process that comes and then there comes a moment when then it gives birth to sin. And when sin takes place, then there is death. The wages of sin is death. But the point is, there's a progression. And the progression begins internally. Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man from the outside that defiles him. For from within, out of the heart, come. And then he lists off this whole series, this whole list of evil things. Out of the heart come greed, idolatry, sexual sin. The action comes as the last step. So if we are going to put to death the deeds of the body, we are also to fight the rest of what the Bible teaches us to. For instance, in the Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandment is you shall not covet. Covet is something that happens in the heart and with the eyes. Second Corinthians 10 shows us that we are to take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. Every thought. There's first Peter two eleven. You can jot down. Let me read it to you. Beloved, I urge you as strangers and aliens, because that's what we are. Our home is in heaven to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against your soul. Our lust are waging war and we are called to address the lust themselves. You might flip over with me if you like to Colossians chapter three, verse five. This is a very helpful one. I'm gonna spend a little bit of time on this one. Colossians three, five. While you're turning, let me sadly say, my beloved New American Standard Translation just does not give the most helpful rendering in the first part of this verse. That pains me badly. You ESV folks, you can rub this one in my face. What the New American Standard does is it gives a rendering and then it gives you a footnote and then shows you what the literal text reads. And the ESV and the King James and some of these, they give the literal and I do believe it's how it should read because there's a difference in the message. So the New American Standard reads, consider yourselves to be dead, consider your members as dead, but that's not what the literal language reads. 
It is a command. So if you have an ESV, it says something like, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. It is a command. So back in Romans 8, we've been seeing that it's not stated in the form of a command. We know there's moral application. The Christian has the spirit and we're being led to put to death the deeds of the body. There's moral application. We're giving moral application from that. But Colossians 3 just actually just words it as a command. Put to death what is earthly in you. And then notice some of the things that it lists off. And remember, the point that I'm making here is both internal and external. This is what we fight. We're told to put to death immorality, okay? That's sexual immorality. It's a general word used that can be external or internal. It's just kind of a generic word for sexual sin. And then there's the word impurity. Notice also the next word there, put to death passion. Passions, what is, what is passions? We sometimes talk about passion in a good way, Though I think that when we do, there's usually a better word we could have used. Like if somebody says, I'm passionate for the Lord, the better word for that is zealous, okay? Passion, English word there, historically, is used in a negative way. Because the word passion comes from the word passive. And it's speaking of when circumstances happen and my emotions are carried along. Like, and I'm not controlling them. I'm not claiming joy in the midst of a difficult thing. I'm just being carried along in by the, the whims of my emotions. Like James talks about those who are shifting and carried along by every wind and wave of doctrine there. So the passions that would be some of those ways we are carried along in wicked ways. And then next put to death evil desire. That's an internal working of the heart. Greed, that's internal. That's an internal lust. And then we're told greed amounts to idolatry. Now, why is that the case? Because greed is desiring money in a way that is treating it as a great treasure. And when you value something as the great treasure, that is what you worship. Okay, so, so a lot of times the word worship is misunderstood. Worship is not just to show up at a place. It's not guaranteed that because you're here that you are actually worshiping. Worshiping is treasuring. It is regarding him as supremely worthy and my soul delights and submits to him. That's worship. Treasuring something as a great treasure is worship. That is why greed amounts to idolatry. So notice in just this one verse, there's a lot said. Put to death internal and external things. We address the heart, the soul, the mind, and the strength. Wednesday night, we studied the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to put to death what is fleshly, what is earthly in the heart, the soul, the mind, and strength. So the point is, yes, God calls us to address all of it, total transformation from the inside and out. Thirdly and lastly, let's talk about how to die to sin. If we are commanded to put this to death, how do we do it? The most important element is simply to decide to do it. This really is like ground level. This will be the biggest thing that happens. When, when, when the, a, a Christian kind of becomes aware of this, the light bulb comes on. This is who I am in Christ. He has made me a saint, a holy one. This is what he has called me to, to follow Jesus. This is just, this is just part of it. This is why God saved me in order to bear good works unto him. Simply the decision to do it and to adopt the mentality. I think that's key a mentality of one who dies to sin. It is a game changer. So day one, this can be a game changer because deliberate sins, um, what the Bible speaks of as presumptuous sins, those are the sins we know we're doing. Those can die. We are all going to have some sins that die pretty quickly. But <laughs> you know where we're going. What about those others? What about the ones that I mean they're like chains tied around my ankles? What about those sins that like they're entrenched 
patterns. There are some of our character sins. I mean, it's like the root is wrapped around the very core of who I am and my very personality. How do I die to that? Bitterness. A murmuring, complaining heart. Pride that is so rooted in pride, I don't even see it. How do we fight that stuff? Well, we're going to take as the guiding principle, Jesus's call for us to ask, seek, and knock. You need grace? What do we do? Ask, seek, and knock. We ask in prayer. We seek by doing, by praying more than just once and doing more. And we knock, meaning don't be lazy, beat on the door. Go after it. Ask, seek, and knock. So how do we, how do we engage in this? One time I was with a group of folks we were in a conversation and one of the ladies in that group was a personal trainer. And one of the other ladies in the group asked for some personal advice. Hey, I want to lose weight. She said, I'd, I'd like to you know, get rid of my fat and be fit. So how do I, how do I do this? Should, should I do cardio or should I lift weights? What the personal trainer said was actually you should do both. And you might think of it as fighting from the outside and the inside. If you do cardio, you're addressing burning the calories of fat itself. But if you lift weights, you build muscle and just the existence of muscle in the body burns a lot of calories. So you're kind of fighting it from both ways. I thought that could be kind of a helpful illustration. When we battle sin, we are to fight both externally, but also internally. We're fighting from both directions. So let's just take one particular sin and let's think it through. One particular sin and think through how might we beat it. And by the way, this is not exhaustive, but this is the kinds of ways that the Christian gets serious and engages in this. Let's, let's take the tongue, our words. Let's say that someone was struggling with a pattern of love the poetic language of scripture. Romans 3 mentions those who have the poison of asp under their lips. An asp is a venomous snake. You ever done that? It's like poison just dripping out of your lips. I have. I've had a season where snapping off in hurtful words regularly became a pattern. Um, I don't like admitting that. It was horrible. But what I would do is a moment would come. In my anger, I'd spout something off. It was mean-spirited. And then I'd be like, oh, what are you doing? And then I'd, I'd apologize. I'd feel terrible about it. And then I'd say, I'm not doing that anymore. Stop it. And I'd work for about three days. And then the next time came, I was enslaved to my tongue. Now, this, I think this would be a good time to illustrate something else, because surely somebody is hearing that and going, well, why didn't you just stop it? Remember that illustration? Because that's not how the flesh works. Now, everybody has some sins that it's easy to die to when you decide to. And everybody has some stuff that it is just like a monster has grabbed onto your legs and he will not let go. And for me... Whatever personality, whatever complexity, this was one. I had a pattern. I was enslaved to my tongue. So let's just take that one as an example. How might a Christian address that sin? Well, we might say um, from the very beginning, kind of a by the way, we'll never address a sin until we see it as ugly. That's kind of a pre-step, okay? Until we see it as ugly, until we see it, as God sees it, the eyes are opened and that's kind of a light bulb moment, which remember Hebrews 4 tells us what does the word of God do? It lays us bare. It exposes ourselves to ourselves. So that's an internal thing, kind of a pre-step. All right, how do we beat it? Let me start with the obvious. I'm not going to give you an order of priority, okay, or any kind of thing like that because a lot of these all need to be happening on the same day. Okay, but let me just, let me just lay, let me just puke it all on the table. We'll sort through it and try to figure it out. Sorry for the gross illustration. Okay, <laughs> number one, 
We need to gain self-control. We need to gain self-control. Galatians 5 says that, that self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit. You have the Spirit within you. He is doing things. You might think of a cluster of grapes. There's a lot of parts to the cluster. Self-control, one of the grapes. We need to grow in it. We have to stop the action. We have to starve the flesh. Now, we already just said, though, that just saying stop it isn't enough. It doesn't work with the hard to beat sins. So we're going to address a lot more, but we do have to know part of the answer is to buckle down and work, to bite the tongue, to exert self-control in order to grow in self-control. Because this is one of the things that happens. How do you, how do you grow a muscle? Work it. How do you grow self-control? Work it. So we have to do something that is going to help ourselves stop the action for a period of time. And as time goes on, the muscle of self-control grows. And we also often find that the desire, the evil desire begins to diminish as well. So you might think of a hundred ideas for ways to help yourself stop the action. I've known Christians who did things like write a, a specific Bible passage and they, they hung it in their car on an index card. You might write down a little message to yourself, put it on your nightstand. First thing you do when you wake up in the morning, you read that passage, you're reminding yourself, I am fighting this. You might wear a bracelet that reminds yourself. You might write a verse on the bathroom mirror, whatever, hundred ideas. We got to remind ourselves all through the day, fight the flesh. I'm going to say no to the flesh. But if that's all we do, good riddance. We won't beat it. We got to add in some more things as well. We must also address the inside. So one of the inside matters is asking the question, why am I doing this? Why am I having this? If all actions have stuff that's below the surface, roots, then, then what is in the root? So the Christian prays, Psalm 139, search me, O God, and try me. Show me what's going on in here. And so over the course of days, weeks, sometimes years, we're praying and thinking and we're asking God, reveal more, reveal more. Well, an easy one with spouting off at the tongue to, to notice is just right below the surface. There's anger. There's anger right below the surface. Why, why am I angry? Because that's not an end in itself. Why am I angry? So the Christian prays and reads, thinks, and realizes I've got some bitterness in there. I never knew I had this bitterness. Where, where'd this come from? What's, what's going on? I've got bitterness down there. And even that is not the bottom. He meditates, he prays some more. He finds that below the bitterness, there's pride. Pride that thinks that I'm so special, everybody ought to treat me exactly how I think I ought to be treated. Now, pride is getting down to the bottom roots. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. But this Christian also realizes, man, I got some problems with like lack of love. I need to grow in kindness. I need to grow in joy. I need to grow in contentment. I need to grow in peace in my heart and a desire for a peace. We're identifying roots. By the way, even that itself is very helpful. We can begin to repent of specific sins of the heart, meaning confess them and then begin to grow. Well, now the Christian has some things. I need to grow in my joy. I need to die to my anger and <clears throat> all this. So the Christian implements a holistic strategy. He prays. Not just once, but regularly he takes prayer seriously, asking God for grace, praying what Jesus taught us to pray. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. God, help me not to fall to this today. The Christian may set aside a day of the week to fast so that he can pray more intensely to give great sincerity in prayer. He confesses his sin to God, obviously, and calls it what it is. But there's another time that the book of James talks about confessing our sins to one another. When we're enslaved to a sin, that's one of the times we need to be able to open up and bring it into the light. Christian, do you have three Christian friends that you could send a text message to and ask them, pray for me about this specifically, and they wouldn't think you're crazy. Fellowship, real fellowship is key to sanctification. That's what Hebrews 10 says. 
It is key to growing in Christ. We need to be able to have some believers that we can confess sins to. And then we're also able to ask them for some counsel. Why do you, why do you think I'm doing this? What's going on? What do you think I should do in this? Proverbs tells us to, to ask for counsel and also recruiting more people to pray for us. That equals a good thing. More grace is being received. And then we're going to find a passage of scripture that specifically helps my heart in regard to this sin. And then we're going to read it till our pages of our Bible begin to fray until they're soaked in tears. I recommend memorizing it. Okay. Memorize a a chapter of the Bible that really helps you. Cause what happens is you're going to read it like more than 50 times that that language gets into you. When the word of God gets into us, it goes to battle. It fights, it cuts, it exposes, it convicts, it inspires. It's working in us. And then we're going to make sure that we are worshiping personally worshiping regularly. Now let me make the comment here to make sure we understand this. We are transformed by worship. That's a biblical principle, but that is not the highest reason why we worship. The highest reason why we worship is that God is our treasure. He's worthy of worship. I want him. We seek him. But we also rejoice in the fact that as we are worshiping in the various means of grace that God has given us, that we are sanctified by worship. So we begin to come to Wednesday nights, shameless plug. We begin to come to Wednesday nights and, and we may even in the time of prayer, like, like why, why would it be weird to raise our hands in the prayer request time and be like, if you could pray with me, I'm really struggling with joy right now. This kind of language should be regular amongst Christians. We should be transparent to where we share the struggles and things and in court and recruit more prayers. So we're going to make sure that my worship life is at a level that it should be. We're going to find a book on the subject. We're going to find a sermon series that helps my heart in this to help me grow. The point is in all of this, there has to be a taking serious of these matters. Sometimes accountability groups can just kind of dissolve into an Elmer Fudd moaning Oh, pray for me. I've got this problem. What are you doing about it? Nothing. Okay. We have got to take it seriously. We have got to go after, we have got to set as a goal of our lives, holiness, growing in these virtues. We beat sin by taking action, continuing as we always have, won't, will not beat specific sins. In fact, we will find we're all on trajectories. Grumpiness after 40 years of grumpiness is a deeper entrenched grumpiness than what it was when we were younger. We have got to get specific. We have got to get serious in these matters. So Christian, put your sin to death. You who have not yet turned to Christ to be saved. You need to know that you will never be able to put sin away like all the way unless that sin is forgiven. The only sins we can beat are the sins that are covered by the blood of Christ. You also need to know that even if somehow magically you found a way to beat all of your sins and you made yourself really nice, you're still not fit for the kingdom of heaven. You've still broken the law of God and that crime deserves punishment. And God tells us what that punishment is. You must have the forgiveness of your sins, the pardoning of your sins. And that comes by right now, turn to Christ. You don't got to have it all figured out, but you you do need to know this. You must be saved and Jesus will save you if you will turn to him and trust in him. Pray, call out to him and ask him to save you. I want to give the invitation. If you want to talk more about that, want somebody to pray with, come find me before you leave here. But let's close in prayer right now. God in heaven, hallowed be your name. We ask, O God, that you will bring us to regard you as holy and that you will use us, O Lord, to show the nations that you are holy. Father, we pray that you will sanctify and transform us. Father, we pray that you will grow us. And so God, we want to pray this really, really hard prayer. Search us, O God. 
and show us. Show us more that you want us, you want us to put to death. Grow us, we pray. Make us serious. Bring us to joy in this beauty of holiness, O oh God. Please give us your blessing as we leave, and we pray all this through Christ. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Thank you.